Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're actually recording not in Connecticut. We're actually in beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota. We're here for our second annual Ambassador Summit and also the Twin Cities Marathon weekend. And I've got a lovely guest sitting across from me here in downtown Minnesota. We're at the Moxie Hotel. Stacy Brown is here with us. Stacy, what are these things, Ryan? Like moose heads, I guess. Yeah, they are obviously not vegetarians here. So yeah, we got a lot of uh, animals on the wall. Pretty cool hotel, though. Yes, yeah, so cool. Uh, the front desk was amazing. They, it's local. Tons of personality. I feel like they give it a home vibe, so I like it. Well, I, the moose, I think, is nostalgic to Minnesota, right? I think. And so that's why we're seeing a lot of nostalgia here, a lot of home stuff. And so for those listening at home, you just heard I've got the wonderful, the talented Stacey Brown. If you have run with us in the past or participated in one of our marathon teams, you probably know that name. But Stacey is a a legend and icon in the endurance space. (laughs) You're killing me. Don't Uh, stop. (laughs) (laughs) But we love, full disclosure here, Stace, as we always do on the Project Purple podcast, is that you've worked with us in the past Mm -hmm. in various capacities. I am personally excited. We are personally excited at Project Purple to have you here this weekend Mm -hmm. with our ambassadors to talk to them about all things fundraising and ambassadorship and all the great things. But for the folks listening at home mm-hmm. that don't know who Stacy Brown is. Yeah. And I could probably do a pretty good job of telling your story, <laughs> but that would not do the audience any justice. No. This is your opportunity as we give all our guests to share your background okay. with our audience. And as you know, we've got a pretty vast audience who listen to the Project Purple podcast. I mean, yeah. we've got a vast audience of people who follow us. We've got crossfitters, right. we've got runners, we've got doctors, we've got patients. So- the mic is yours. Well, thank you, Dina Varelli. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. I do need to tell everyone my first time I ever met Dina Varelli. It was a quite a colorful experience. <laughs> um, for me personally, I am so proud of Dino and Project Purple because to see what he's done since the time I've known him is just mind blowing. And uh, I use him as an example all over the country with all the many nonprofits I work with. Because it's really refreshing to have a leader like Dino, who is passionate, but he also has a business background, which working with a lot of nonprofits, you don't see the, the kind of business savvy that Dino has. So it's quite refreshing for me as an outsider looking in. But uh, yeah, so really quickly. Um, Thank you, by the way, Stacey. That uh, you're was welcome. an unpaid but it's true. It's true. So I am... 45 years old. And when I graduated from the University of Alabama, I graduated um, in four years and I wanted to take a year off. So I snowboarded in Breckenridge, Colorado, and it was super fun. And then my parents were like, yo, you need to get a J-O-B job. So I ended up working my first job right out of college at 22, Deuce Deuce, uh, was the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. And in the, I'm from Alabama, so I moved back to Alabama. And I worked for a team in training for 10 years. I worked at the Alabama chapter for five years. And then I was asked to be a national manager, and I moved to the West Coast. So that's how I ended up in Phoenix. So I ended up working with, for team in training for 10 years, five years at the chapter level and then five years at the national level. When I left, team and training was at the peak 
of their program, raising $125 million. Then I got recruited to go to the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. No disease is sexy, but Crohn's and colitis is super not sexy. Um, Worked there for five years, and I implemented a program called Team Challenge, where we did half marathon half marathons um, because I feel like that's a door opener into the endurance space. And then I went to the American Cancer Society. And then after being there, I then started my own consulting business. And Dino was one of my first clients. And the first time I met him, uh, we met at Grand Central Station. In New York. In New York, because I was in New York on business. And we met. It was him and his lovely wife, Dawn. And we met downstairs next to a Shake Shack or a Magnolia Bakery. (laughs) I think that was right. I think think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Magnolia is not there, but the Shake Shack is still there. And uh, there was this amazing homeless person next to us and we were having this like really good meeting but yet this homeless person was next to us not that I it was just a really unique experience to have your first meeting um in the bottom of Grand Central with a homeless person and smelling banana pudding because at the time I remember Magnolia Bakery was there and I remember at that time Dino had his full-time job and his father had had passed passed away and he was just screaming with a ton of passion. And I remember him saying, I've raised $250,000 this year and I want to raise a million. And it was so cool to see him go from there to where he is now. Last night when I came into the hotel, I about, I wanted to like jump up and down and do a bunch of herkies and say, go Dino, go, because you have a team now. And for so long for Dino, as you all know him, he loves what he does. I wish I could clone him in every hire I made, but it was really hard, I think, for a while for him to let go. And I would say to him, if you want to grow, you've got to delegate out and now you have. And so it's cool to see that you have a team and I can see that now what you're really good at, you're able to do, which is really meet with donors and talk about Project Purple while your team can be boots on the ground, helping you implement what you sell. So I love, I love what I do. I wish everyone could work like me and Dino because we are changing the world as cheesy as that sounds. Um, I've worked with, I, I continue to work with a really amazing causes. My jam is fitness where I work with charities with indoor cycling, um, road, bike races and obviously running. And I've just now in the last few years started partnering with races where I manage their corporate team, charity and ambassador programs. So it's been really interesting to work on the race side. So I feel like I'm one of the few people that have a full 360 view of a true endurance training program. And I've worked on every single side from the race to the other. So anyway, what you want to talk about now, Dino? Well, I'm going to slow you down there a little bit. You haven't had the full cup of coffee yet. No. So I know (laughs) you're you're, you're like your speed level right now is about like a four and a half, which is usually like a 10. You're usually at like maybe 10 to 12, exceeding that limit. So I wish I I say this often on this podcast. I wish we had a vlog, a video blog, a video podcast to go along because we're going to back it up here a little bit, sister, because I'm looking at your 
Apple here. Yeah. And it's nothing but Roll Tide. So we're going to go is. back to this very beginning. You said you're originally from Alabama. Yes, I'm originally from Alabama. You I'm actually from Tuscaloosa. Tuscaloosa. You and went to the University of Alabama. Yes. And so my great-grandparents your- lived right behind the stadium. So as a little girl, I would go and like do flips and stuff to get them to park their cars at my great-grandparents because that was their Christmas money for the family and vacation money. So, um, and then if it was a a day game, like a cupcake team, not like a big team. My dad and I would go to the games because, you know, the bigger games was a bunch of riffraff. So I couldn't go to those. So for our audience listening at home, Stacy is super passionate. I'm surprised you don't have, again, if we had a vlog, you would see this. Those look like Oregon duck colors, which we know you married Jeff, Stacy's husband, who is mm-hmm. a, a fanatical duck. Yes from Oregon, yes. fanatical. Yes. And I know that's caused issues in the family in the it past. Do, it does. But you it's do really not funny. have the the Alabama colors on. Yeah. So like, what's up with that? Well, Everything I, else here on the table yeah, is, all, is yeah. all crimson. So I bought this specifically to wear to an Oregon football game because I do I do, do a little bit of yellow and green. And that's funny that you mentioned that because that's literally why I bought this jacket. It's the first time I've worn it. It's, is today um i was packing fast and i needed a jacket and this was i just grabbed it and ran out the door it works so, so how yeah. do you just to talk about or uh, not oregon but alabama football mm-hmm. they've had great success and we're not that could be a whole other podcast for hours and you and i have shared a lot of similarities there's a guy that i follow dr Elko. kelly Elko, if he's listening love your stuff if if those who are listening have never heard of dr kevin Elko. Do a Google search. He does a Monday morning inspiration talk, which is phenomenal. It relates to life, just not athletics, but he has done a lot with Alabama football. He's worked with the Philadelphia Eagles. He's worked with the Patriots and so on, Pittsburgh Steelers. He works with all the the major professional teams Mm -hmm. that typically will win. Yeah. Oh, says something, right? Yeah. But so recently, though, this is my one Alabama question, I promise. Recently, I read something, how... The university is having a very hard time of keeping students at the game for two yes. reasons at home games. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are blowouts. Yes. And also, they're played so damn early, yes. especially this time of year. It's like 95 degrees. Yes. So by the time halftime rolls around, no one's half the stadium's empty. Yeah. It, it's, so, how do you feel about that? Well, it's interesting because I uh, went to the Alabama South Carolina game this year, and it was the second weekend of September. And um, we were in the visitor section, which means we were the last people to get shade. Cause you know, whenever you're a visitor, you get the worst seats. And that was like a few years ago when I went to the Texas A&M Alabama game, when Johnny, Johnny Menzel, Johnny football was playing and we were like way up high in the sun and it was a September game and it was miserable. And it was just sad because like kids were there. They were only there for like 10 minutes. There were a ton of people that were like dropping because you were like in the heat of the day. And it's such a bummer because it is college. So you don't have the luxury of being in an NFL stadium where there is air conditioning, et cetera. So speaking because I just went to a game this year and I was a visitor and I was in the work. We had the sun on us. Till the sun went down and it was awful. Um, I feel like 
And what's funny is, ironically, this you'll think this is interesting because I love Coach Nick Saban. Um, I said we're staying for a full 60 minutes. If the football team stays here, then we stay here. So we actually stayed. And when I went to the national championship game this past year, where Clemson just gave it to us, I did not leave until the last second because, again, I'm a legit fan and I'm going to stay for the full 60 minutes because Coach Saban says the players work really hard and it's our job to support them. Um, And so it's a double – it's hard because it's like, you know – the heat is the heat, right? I mean, think about running a marathon when it's really, really hot and then having to stay there three hours after you want to leave. It's kind of how it is in a football game because you want to stay, you spend all this money, et cetera, parking, it's chaos. So I go back and forth, but Nick Saban does want us to play an extra um, SEC football team or powerhouse because he says, you know, players want, fans want to watch good games. And so I feel like September is just almost like pregame in the NFL. And now we're finally into football starting to, you know, October. So, yeah. So I get it. They're college students, whatever. But I also am like, if if Coach Saban is there for 60 minutes, then I'm going to be there for 60 minutes. But I'm not normal. <laughs> that's putting it politely, Stacey. <laughs> and that's a good thing, though. And knowing is half the battle, though, right? Like yeah, most of the yeah. people who don't know that, that yeah. they're not normal. That's it's kind of like, you know, when you're running and you're like, okay, I'm going to run to the tree. And then you get to the tree and you're like, okay, now I'm going to run to um, the driveway. Yeah. So, like, when a game is really hot and it's miserable, I'm like constantly looking at the clock. <laughs> Get to the two-minute mark. And I'm like, run the ball, run the ball, run yeah. the ball. <laughs> Don't let the clock stop. <laughs> yeah. Um, at Alabama, mm-hmm. what was it or was there something along the way? I know you said so. You So it's funny. We're right around the same age. You know, back then, I think taking a year off from college mm-hmm. wasn't as accepted as it is today where people are like, oh, I'm doing a gap year. I'm traveling around yeah. the world or I'm going snowboarding. Yeah. It was like back then it was like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Like, you know, it's like you're taking a year off. Like, how could you do that? You just went to school for four years. Shouldn't you be getting a job where now it's like it's crazy how it's come like 20 years later. They're like, oh, that's actually a good thing. That's enlightenment. Like someone's going to get enlightened. Yeah, I mean, it was really cool because I've only lived in the South. So you don't know what you don't know. And moving out to Colorado, I was like, whoa, um, this is a whole different world. And and I think that what... um, I really got out of it is that I had the best time, um, had a great time, but I remember I was ready to use my brain towards the end. I was like, okay. And I believe that because of me taking that year off, my work ethic was just insane because I had no regrets. So to me, but I'm also again, different, but I remember going into work and I just worked really, really hard and I never, I never felt like I was missing out on anything, if that makes sense. No, it does. And it's powerful for the audience listening at home. So was it at school or the year that you were out in Colorado mm-hmm. that you realized like, hey, I want to work in charity? Because, and you and I have talked about yeah. this, but especially, you know, our, again, our audience is pretty vast and, you know, there's 
kids that are in college that might be listening yeah. to this and like how many kids really know what they want to do, right? Like there's probably not many. I mean, I guess if we had to put percentages on it, maybe it's less than 2%. pressure to be like 18, what do you want to do? Um, I uh, originally went into law, wanted to be a law, pre-law, but then after I was like, no, I, I don't really like this. So I went into business and my major at the time was healthcare management because that's when Hillary was all about healthcare reform and I'm like, the baby boomers are going to get old and assist healthcare management is going to be you know like it is and it's you're it's interesting now because you're seeing so much more like assisted living homes popping up and like just different things for older people but that was 24 years ago however um I had a professor, um, I took a business ethics class, and I had this amazing professor, Dr. Crown, and I wonder where she is now. I do need to Google her, because she was just amazing, and she pulled me to the side one day and was like, you need to be, like, you need to be, like, in a business where you are so gifted socially like I am a great at small talk and a lot of people aren't and I just can work a room really well and she was like you need to get into either being a lobbyist or get into nonprofit or like executive like like party planning almost because she was like you're really good at that and so that kind of stuck stuck with me and then my senior year of college um I am from Alabama I was in a sorority <laughs> And uh, one of my pledge sisters said, oh, there's a, um, my sister just called and there is a job opening at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I remember Dr. Crown saying to me, you want to get into nonprofit because A, you're going to, when you're fully staffed, you're still understaffed. And it's an opportunity for you to wear multiple hats, get lots of experience that say, for example, at a larger company, your whole job could only be social media. Whereas here, it's social media, it's logistics, it's development, it's picking up boxes, it's pretty much everything. And so um, I interviewed and obviously, I, you know, they said, well, you know, I said, oh, well, I'll be ready in a year. I'm going to Colorado. So anyway, when I was in Colorado and I was getting ready to come back home, I reached out and at the time they were interviewing and I went in and I was just gifted that like my job was to do golf tournament. I had to do golf tournament and luncheons and team and training. And I got into it and I just loved it because it I got to do all my favorite things and make a really positive impact and it's cool because at 23, I, you know, I have Facebook friends of little kids that are now adults that had leukemia. And uh, it's so cool to see. It's just cool to see like they're where they are today. Um, Shelby is amazing. And I remember. And, and, and this was a, fan, a girl. That yeah, had, yeah. Leukemia. She had leukemia mm -hmm. and she's 23, 24 now. And uh, I remember when she sent me her high school graduation all the way out in Arizona and I cried and it was happy tears because I just remember when she got diagnosed and like having conversations with her mom about dropping her daughter off at daycare. And she's just being really bitter because she's like all these cute little girls get out of their minivan with long blonde hair and the moms are wearing their tennis outfits and my daughter has no hair and I've got to pick her up and take her to the hospital to get, you know, a spinal tap. And I just remember thinking, wow, that's like 
that it's like a gut check on like, we really don't have problems. And we constantly get so into petty things. And I would say in my job, whenever I'm at like being what I would say a diva or like not keeping it real, someone always calls me and basically puts me in my place from, I just wanted to let you know my granddaughter passed away today to, um, you know, so-and-so just got diagnosed with cancer, et cetera. Or they tried a clinical trial, they didn't work, and the doctor said you need to get your affairs in order. So like when my aunt had pancreatic cancer, they didn't even tell, she had no options. It was you need to get your affairs and orders because there's nothing we can do. And so I think for me, it's like, I feel like to make a difference in the world, it's one small change at a time. I feel like people think everything you need to do for a change needs to be drastic, but it's just a one small thing at a time. And so I feel like I get to do one small thing at a time on a daily basis to help battle things that need our support, such as cancer and homelessness and Parkinson's and everything, every other bad disease out there. That's powerful what you just said. So I'm, I'm just making a mental note here. If you did not take that class, do you think and had that experience with that professor, do you think you'd I've be where you were? I've never thought about it like that, um, but totally because I just... I re she was so good and it was ethics. I would love to take her class today <laughs> because it'd be a lot more colorful. But yeah, I mean, she just was, there wasn't a lot. She was, first of all, a hot teacher. Like she had blonde hair, rocking body. Like she did not look like, she, she was not like any other of the professors. She had massive swagger and she was just cool. And when she had the put time to tell me where I see an opportunity in you. And one of the things she said was get into nonprofit. And then from there, you're going to build contacts, right? Because in nonprofit, you're dealing with, you know, board members and like people that have leadership positions and your network really builds. And so that was my angle. And when I got in, I never thought that I would be where I am today. And um, I just really love what I do. And I love making a difference. And the few, the few times I've had to work in nonprofit or work with for-profit people, I just think they suck. <laughs> I do because like their priorities are so like not where they need to be. Like if they really treated their employees good and then created like social responsibility and a really good morale, I think their businesses would be so much better because they're focusing on people and then people want to feel good because people don't leave jobs because of the job they leave because of people. people yeah. And so I feel that there's so much opportunity for leadership to really embrace charity and social responsibility that would really, we would crush we would we would be so ahead of everybody else in the world it's fascinating that you just said that about people you know because it's so true but you know mm -hmm. how many people can say they love what they do as well you know so not you a lot <laughs> I, I don't love it every day but like i always say well, pick your work, poison right, right. It's, work. it's work yeah it's work, right? my mantra is it's hard work being fabulous and it is yeah. um right it's kind of like as a lot of people i'm sure that are listening to this it's like at work right when you get right when you get your groove going on here comes a new boss here comes a reorg it's like and i would say the one consistent thing in life is change and i think a lot of people don't embrace it or they embrace it in the wrong way. And it's kind of like, 
respecting tradition, but pushing boundaries. Does that make sense? Like pushing boundaries with change while respecting traditions. And I think that um, that's something that, because everybody likes to go back to their college because of the alma mater and the tradition of it. Then it's kind of like, but you also have to have some change to make the world better in a direction where we need to go. Am I making sense? Totally. And so I think the one thing though that you you just threw in there though is hard work. I mean, I think that's the one thing for our audience listening at home, young, old, regardless of your age Absolutely. or where you are, is that and something that I've that's always said. That's the silver bullet. You've got to work hard <laughs> to get certain things in life. It is. And, and if it's we look- funny because everyone's like, I'm like, I'll tell you what, when I go in with a nonprofit and I meet with them, you know, I'm like, I'll tell you the silver bullet. It is hard work. And it's hard and you have to be prepared to do that. And when I'm coming in, I'm recommending change and change is uncomfortable. And it's also hard because a lot of people are complacent. They're just in a, they're like, you know, in a system, right? They're, they're complacent. And I think a lot of people in nonprofits are complacent because they've been there for a while and they're not as connected as like you are. And that's where the leadership should be constantly pushing the boundaries of keeping them in front of the mission and showing them the impact so they want to work harder. That's what I think. And when things change, you grow. You should grow, right? Yeah. So that's like I mean, when you're you uncomfortable, that, that's you're a good thing. Yeah, yeah. It's a good thing. Like yeah. the amount of uncomfortableness in your life usually determines the quality of your right. life. Right. And I've it's heard. funny because when people are at their happiest, they're going through a change, which yeah. they don't realize. Like when you meet a when you meet, you know, your your person, you're so giddy and happy. Well, that's because it's a it's a new change when you a having a baby, a new job, you know, and so but it's interesting. Get a that new car, right? A new car. <laughs> Like anything that's new in your life is a change, change and so many people love it, but at the same time they resist, resist it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's so many opportunities you're missing. And then if it doesn't work out, I think failures are just as great as successes. I always say, try something new, fail fast, learn from it, move forward. And I think so many people are scared to fail and you have to fail to grow and learn and also know how to change in a more positive way because you're learning from your failures. So staying on the track of change here, so you were at LLS for 10 years. Yes. So five years uh-huh. and then you decided there was a, a change that was needed. Yes. So that's a big step being from yeah, Alabama, I mean, then yeah. you went to Arizona. Yes. That's where all major life, like so what, major what, changes. What was the reason back then? Why did you make that change? To leave the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society? To leave the confine, uh, you yeah. know, the friendly confines yeah. of Alabama and um, family. You're an only yeah. child. I've been, yes, yes. I've had the pleasure of meeting your mom <laughs> and dad. Hopefully they're listening, Mike and Suzanne. They love Stacy Brown. They love Stacy Brown. <laughs> But you left the, the, the friendly confines of uh, Alabama to go yeah. to Arizona. Well, honestly, I was dating a guy at the time. And, you know, I was now 20, the truth comes out. Yeah, I was 27. And I didn't want to give him an ultimatum. So I thought, ah, oh, this will be great. I'll move to Arizona. And he'll say, no, don't go. But uh, that didn't happen, which was a blessing in disguise, obviously, because I kind of like where I'm at right now in my life. Yeah. And um, I moved to Phoenix. And I remember I literally had what you would call a situational crisis. I was 27 and I had a major change in every capacity of my life. And it's definitely, it was the hardest and best thing I ever did. And I'll look at the growth that I got from it. And 
I was so scared and so excited and definitely molded me into, I would never have the career or job opportunities that I had, had I not moved to Arizona. I just, I feel like I am a pretty well-rounded person and, um, I just feel like most people aren't normally just mean. If you dig in a little deeper, you find out why. They could have said, oh, today's the one-year anniversary of my mom's death. Um, so what I guess I've learned of being in this industry and then moving and changing with pretty big changes in my life, I've learned um, really about grace. And grace is something that I'm always trying to send to people because – People aren't intentionally bad people. They're not intentionally moody. And if you show them grace, you will find out that they aren't just rude because they're rude people. That's what I've discovered. Like, yeah, I'm constantly like saying, okay, don't judge, have grace because you're not walking in their shoes and you don't know what kind of day they've had. And I feel like that's something that people don't do. They were quick to judge. Um, and I don't think we should. I think we should have a little bit of grace first. Well, that's a very timely message, especially with what's going on, not just in the philanthropic world, but in yeah, the world everywhere. as a whole, right? Yeah. I feel like everyone's so focused on listen to me, listen to me, instead of, you know what? I'm going to give them grace and, 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 and send them lots of love, light, and faith that they can fix their stuff, but I'm not going to judge them because I don't walk in their shoes. Mm -hmm. You don't walk in my shoes. It's, but it's very hard and it's something that I have to focus on on a daily basis. Cause sometimes I'll be like, "Uh Oh, you're judging. Don't judge. Don't judge. Don't judge. I will tell you this. The only people that I judge are the Auburn tigers. <laughs> I have no, I can't do it. I'm so sorry. I have friends that went to Auburn. I love them, but I just cannot stand the Auburn tigers. Sorry for our <laughs> Auburn fans. Uh, <laughs> so sorry, you guys. I just don't like Auburn. Well, moving on from <laughs> Auburn, because we're not going to stay there long, Stacey. Good, good. Let's move forward. I shouldn't even give them a shout That's out. That's okay. <laughs> so you leave LLS. Yes. You go to Crohn's. Yes. You go from building Crohn's and colitis, yes. their endurance program from like nothing. Zero to 30 million. To 30 million. Yeah. And then you leave Crohn's and colitis. Yes. And go to American Cancer Society, yes. which is... You know, here in the United States is probably the, when it comes to cancer, clearly uh -huh. it's got its name, you yeah. know, American Cancer yeah. Society in the title. I mean, I think that's the first group that anyone thinks about if you were to say. I mean, they're over a hundred years old. They should correct, be. right? You know, yeah. And they do some amazing things. I mean, I think when I started Project Purple, one of the things I used to say, and you and I have talked about this, but for our audience listening at home is like, oh, these big groups, like they don't get enough money to, you know, they've got so much overhead. Right. But then if you start to peel back the layers, and I've experienced this for what we've done in our small history is as you grow, nothing comes free, first of all. No, and I think that- But, as, but as you grow, mm -hmm. like inherently those costs increase as well. Yeah. When we talk about staffing. And, yeah. And if you look at, we were saying last night, what's there, 1.4 million- uh, charities in the United yeah, States now. Yeah, there's 1.4 million 501c3. And I think less, <laughs> less than 0.02, I think is the number or less than a percent yeah. are actually endowed. So that means for our listeners at home, if you have a charity that's endowed, they have zero overhead. Yes. And those are 
like I said, few and far between. Yeah, those are for the one percent that sponsor Correct. those because they have to for tax benefits. So at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and I've always said this, most charities are run like a for-profit business. Should be run like a they for-profit. Should be. Should be run like a for-profit be. business. Yes. So Which is there refreshing are expenses. working with you. Correct. Not a commercial for Project Purple here. No, but, but I'm just saying like so many people don't run their nonprofit like a business and you are in the business of, of running a business. You're, yeah. And you're in the business of trying to fight cancer Correct. and it's a, you have a strategy. Your end goal is to end pancreatic cancer. So you have to have a business plan around that. And what are you going to do to get there? And staff and people are pretty critical and marketing and, and when i free. work with a charity i always say how much money do you want to raise how much do you want to spend and then are you and are you going to invest in staff and if you're going to invest in staff you have to invest in marketing and if you're going to invest in marketing you have to invest in staff and oh by the way i can't tell you if the staff person you hire is going to be the right fit because we as we all know with interviewing people when i interview people the question i always ask myself is what problem do I want to manage? Because they're not all good. What they're good at, I'm never going to manage them on. And I think a lot of times we focus on, oh, they do this all so well. But we don't think about what they don't do well or what they don't have experience in because that's what you're managing. And so I think that's something that as a manager, you have to kind of pause and look at that because it could be that – you know, it's not the right fit and that person could have really good interviewing skills and the person you interview never walks into the office. You're like, where was that girl I interviewed? Because she hasn't been around since that interview. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tricky. And I think people are the most powerful asset, positive and negative, right? They can bring yes. a company down or they can raise it up really quick yeah i mean it's and so many things are little things again going back to little things like you know like working like when i was working you know when i work with races and i people there's you know there's runners that are very passionate about their t-shirt and the size and there's nothing worse when they order a size and you're out of it or you know or you won't let them exchange sizes that kind of thing and it's interesting it's all in what you say and how you deliver it and how the people I would work with, I'm like, why are you being so rude? Like they're just the way they're toned. I'm like, there's no need to be rude about it. Like, you you know, you come up with a solution and you say, here are all of our options, et cetera, that kind of thing. But it's interesting when you see people who take pride in what they do and who don't take pride. And I always say to a lot of people, if you don't like people, then don't work with people. That's that's rule number one, right? <laughs> yeah, like when I'm working with volunteers, I'm like, if you have volunteers that don't like people, then we need to put them in recovery bags, let them do bag stuffing or hold on the a corners, sign. Yeah, on the corners, <laughs> on the corner. And, and, I was, and it's funny because I was like, we all have those people that like to volunteer, but they're just not good with people. And that's okay. But don't have those be the face of your, of your brand because that's not good. So – you're at Crohn's. You yes, go, go, we go back. No, it's okay. Yeah. We go to American Cancer Society. Yes. And then you decide to leave. Well, I didn't decide to leave. <laughs> well. So um, what was interesting with the American Cancer Society is that, you know, it's kind of like there. I remember at Crohn's, I thought I, 
what I loved about Crohn's is that at the time when I got there, they were a $40 million organization and I was leaving like a $250 million organization. So what I liked about going to Crohn's was that I was going to get to build and there wasn't going to be a lot of layers and bureaucracy and all of that. So one thing I think I'm really good at is I'm a builder. I I feel that I'm a creative person and I'm innovative. So I love building. I think that once you build it, that's when all the processes come in, the bureaucracy. And those are their roadblocks. And I feel like so many companies um, get in their own way um, because they're so focused on certain things and you know so anyway so I felt like I wanted more resources and when I mean that it's like I wanted to work with an ad agency I wanted to do more things and the American Cancer Society recruited me at the time they're going through transformation and I think what's interesting and this goes with all the big organizations and you're and you're seeing it even more now is that uh, while the world around changed a lot of these large organizations didn't change and they were like no we're going to continue doing what we're doing and then what happens is is that people go start their own nonprofits, mm-hmm. such as you you're like I don't think you know yeah the American Cancer Society is great but they're not a hundred percent focused on pancreatic cancer and I want to focus only on pancreatic cancer so what's happened now is you see that's how Susan G. Komen got started she was with working with the American Cancer Society she didn't like to see where they were going so she started started Komen. So when I got there, they were having, they were declining and that's when they were like, okay, we need to basically become one 501c3 because they were not. So there anyway, was something like 13 at they the were time. 13 at the time, which was 13 CEOs, 13 different health insurance plans, 13 days off, you know, <laughs> and they were, you know, it was crazy. And I never thought to ask that the, if they were 1501c3 because I had always worked for organizations that were one that yeah. had chapters. So I was like, wait a minute. Like, are you for real? You're 13 nonprofits. I'm kind of blown away with how good you guys are. Right? Yeah. So anyway, um, I came in and basically was showing, you know, you don't know what's broken if you don't know. So like when I walked into their program, they had a lot of, they had made a lot of decisions and investments that at the time they thought were best for them. But on paper, it was like, oh, wow, this is not looking good. And I didn't, and they didn't know that because again, it's kind of like when I do audit, I'm going back to like when I do audits for charities and I'll reach out to fundraisers and I'll say, well, how's your fundraising experience? And they'll say, no, it was fine. And I would say, well, how are the staff? And they were like, well, every time I call, they would email me back and you know, they would check in and say, hey, you know, do you need anything? And I remember she saying, I've never done this before. So I, did, I didn't know what to ask. I didn't know what I needed. Now going back, I would have questions to ask. So it it was kind of like saying, you really have to treat every first time fundraiser, fundraising 101. So I was like in graduate school with my experience and I went back and I was like, oh my God, they're in graduate school, but they failed all their algebra classes. Like how did they get, they were able to work the system and then now it was like, so anyway, I was showing, you know, numbers and they decided, um, with a lot of staff transition and layoffs, we were the first campaign that they said, you know what, we're going to eliminate this campaign and really focus on, um, you know, trying to work smarter because we're one organization and we really want to trim the fat. Mm-hmm. So they eliminated the program, but now it's back. 
which is ironic, not ironic, but I've worked with them this past year. And it's it was really cool to work with them this past year because they have all new people and they're all about not they're not like, okay, how are we going to replace the money that we've lost? And they're just being really innovative. And they're, they have a CMO that's like, if you're going to fail, fail fast, move on. But we have to keep trying to do different things because what we're doing right now is not growing. So we're going to have to keep going and trying. But through this like transition is where they've lost a lot of the little guy. And so what you're seeing now in the in our world, in the peer-to-peer world, is that all the big boys, like all the larger organizations are declining because the market share is being taken by people like Project Purple, as well as hospitals. Because, you know, hospitals are now getting into the space and people can obviously touch, feel, and see the nurse, the doctor, everything. And they, you know, fundraise for the hospitals. So it's really interesting where people are like, oh, the world, you know, it's declining. I'm like, it's not declining. It's actually growing. Just growing and spreading out. Yeah, bit. it's like true grassroots, right? So anyway. So you and then start I started my own consulting SLB. Business. Yeah. And you've worked with a variety of clients. So yes. now we fast forward to where <laughs> we are today. And you work with races, you work with charities, uh-huh. you consult, you do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. What part of the job do you enjoy most, do you think? Um, I would say the job I enjoy most is really working with smart, good people and volunteers. I really like when I get to meet with the volunteers. I remember I was working for an organization called the the John Vulcan Academy. It's a two-year program for men between the ages of 18 and 35 and women who are battling addiction. And it was really cool to meet the parents um, that were coming in that weekend to see their kid for the first time in like three months and to see them see each other and like cry because their son like looked healthy and good. And the last time they seen them, you know, they were doing crystal meth. And I just remember like crying with I always say if I'm not if I don't, if I'm not emotional, then it's time for me to leave. So I think what makes me feel good is a lot of times I'll be thinking, am I do I still like this? And then I'll get with a client and their volunteers and I'll and I'll just get really overwhelmed with emotion. And I'm like, OK, I still love what I do. It's powerful stuff. It so is. I think, I think it's most really people like, can't yeah. say that, though. Like, right? like, no, no. And so it's just interesting because my husband always gets frustrated with me because, you know, I'll do something and he'll get upset. I'm like, dude, we do not have cancer. Like, get over yourself. Dial 1-800-GET-OVER-IT. <laughs> because in the big scheme of things, I'm like, we are so blessed with our our first world problems. You know, we have food to eat. We're healthy. We have health insurance. And it seems so, like, cheesy to say. But I've traveled to the Philippines and Thailand and Africa all over the world and I have seen like legit poor people so we're just a really fortunate country I feel like we have so much to be grateful for we do we do do. yeah and sometimes we need a touch of reality yeah I just feel like all we talk about is what we need to do better or whatever and I'm like why can't we just like breathe and take a minute and be like we're so grateful that we don't have a lot of problems that so many countries have and that we do have we have the power and the freedom to make change in the way that we view that we want to change the world I couldn't agree with you more I'm digging this conversation you're agreeing with everything <laughs> I'm saying are you always like this 
Not always, but <laughs> no, I, I think we, we share a very similar mentality though. Yeah. I think when you do what we do in charity and you yeah. deal with what we do, and this kind of brings me to my next question is in your experience in your 20 plus years in the charity space, regardless of what organization and even what S SLB, what's been the most powerful moment for you? Okay, that is not one thing. That's like multiple things. There's if so you had many. to pick one, though, that really stands out oh, to this gosh. day. I mean, I know you mentioned the girl before that, you know, when you were at LLS. I mean, this is the one I, I, I've mentioned, and I, I use it a lot, but it was so true. This was, are you ready for it? I'm ready. This was back in the day when we had voicemail and we answered our phones. <laughs> and I remember um, when I was working at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and we didn't have voicemail. That's what it was. And we had a patient service manager. And I remember we had a brown bag lunch. And she said, you know, when I'm not here or you guys are answering the phone and someone calls, such as a parent who's just got a, a child that's been newly diagnosed or whatever, then, you know, here, here are things that you're going to want to say. Because obviously we want you to at least have the tools to say and do until I can get back and help them. And I remember taking the phone calls like during lunch one day, everybody was gone. And I took, I took this call and it was this mom. And I remember her. And at the time we did patient aid where we, at that point gave up to $500 a year, which was for like gas, airplane tickets, parking, just incidentals that add up. And I just remember her saying that, um, she wanted to thank me for like the $17.26 check we sent her. And I was like, okay, this is weird because you're not supposed to be thanking me, <laughs> right? This is a service to you. And she just said, I have three kids and I have two little boys and my daughter Ashley's three and has leukemia. And she says, it's been really hard on the family because... Um, I've had to quit my job because Ashley with her chemo and being sick, my two boys, you know, now we're on a tighter budget where things that we could used to do, we can't do anymore. And they're always like, why do you always spend time? Like, why do we have to, you know, spend time with Ashley? You know, why are you always spending time with Ashley? And then Ashley cries when the boys get to go to swimming parties and spend that. And as a parent, she was like, as a parent, it is really hard to parent when you have healthy kids and not healthy kids. And, you know, your little girl's crying because she wants to go outside and play, but she can't because she's, you know, obviously. And then the little boys are like, why do we have to revolve around Ashley? And they're all young. And so anyway, she said, this check came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. And I got to take my two little boys to McDonald's today and treat them to Happy Meals and play. And I want to say thank you for giving me that unexpected gift where I was able to have quality, happy time with my boys and just thank you. And I was like, and I remember that was for so long. And even to this day, I still use it when I'm like talking about money and donations because people are like, oh, my, your money does make a difference. And again, my mantra is, it's all about the little things, you know, like that impacted me in such a way that I still think about to this day. So that would be like a pretty powerful story on what makes a difference and things that, again, we take for granted means so much to so many people. And that a good story. Yeah. 
I think it's, it's so good. I mean, I can get teary eyed here. I can get teary eyed thinking yeah. about it because now, as I'm older, right? I was 24, or 25 at the time. And you're like, okay, where are we going to drinks on Friday? Yeah, then yeah, you think about yeah. Someone who's now saying, I'm just like, you, you know, know, how much seventeen dollars yeah. means to that family, which is like a happy meal, which is so crazy, though, you know, and like how we take for granted. And I think like the arc of the story here in this conversation is just you, you mentioned the grace, but these gifts that we're given and really blessed to be. And an opportunity to help, even if it's one person, but how powerful that can be, right? Right. It's being part of the solution and this kind of like, don't complain, do something. And you're doing something such as giving $20 donation. You unfortunately never get to see that impact, but I do. And it's kind of cool. Like I remember I would always start mission moments and I would, I would go to the patient service manager and this is what I would say. I'm like, well, who have we helped this week? Because I need to go inspire my team. And she would say, Oh, well, we got a family into the Ronald McDonald house and we were able to get them oxygen because their child, I guess, oxygen was something that the insurance or whatever. And it's just interesting. Like the things that you do that people don't realize are really amazing. So anyway, but Powerful. I would say that a nonprofit, the most important thing are people. You know, like when a, if someone's good at their job and they leave, you see it a lot with volunteers where they're like they've left and I don't know what's going on or whatever. And I feel like it's really important that volunteers are the heartbeat of every organization and, you know, to work with them and cultivate them and empower them. But also you have to manage them too, which is, can sometimes be hard because they have so much passion and sometimes that passion can get in the way of, at the end of the day, I always say money equals mission, mission equals money. You cannot have, you cannot fulfill the mission without money. It sucks. It's the way the world is. It's the reality. Yeah. Delta's not going to donate plane tickets, you know, researchers. And if you go to a research lab. Yeah. And so it's hard because they're like, oh, all they want is money. But at the end of the day. It um, takes money to do things. Yeah. And I feel like. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And if you don't understand that with charity. A lot of people don't because they're like, I don't like that their expenses are X. And I'm like, well. Leadership is critical. If you have the right leadership and the right staff, you're going to crush it in your for your mission. It's so and I'm not going to harp on this because this could be another podcast in itself. But, you know, it's it's fascinating. Every year in the state of Connecticut, they come out with like the hospitals and oh, wow, like so and so CEO makes X. But then usually that's predicated on the hospital having a very good patient rating low malpractice because the surgeries that are being done are are doing, done the right way, mm-hmm. safety and everything. But people tend to complain because they're a nonprofit that the guy makes too much money. But when it comes to quality of care, those facilities tend to have mm-hmm. very good quality of care. Not always, I'll, I'll preface that, right? But, yeah. but a lot of times that's the case. And I, and I think that, you know, someone always said this to me is like, you look at Apple, like you want like the they want the greatest minds in the world right to build products or samsung or bose or wh- whatever technology company it is right nasa think about it we want we want to get to the moon again or where where do we want to go we want to build a space station we want to go to mars yeah. right they're going to hire the greatest minds in the world so why shouldn't we do that in the charitable space why shouldn't know. we hi- not hire someone who's super intelligent who's super passionate who who can who works like a machine why wouldn't we want those people to work in charity 
and not pay them appropriately. Now, I'm not saying that there should be a glutton of- No, but I feel like in a world like money, you have, again, I have a power bill. Yeah. I have a house payment. <laughs> you know, these are things that people forget about. I pay about. taxes, groceries. <laughs> I have to pay taxes. I have and, to, yeah. All, like we don't, we don't have, <laughs> oh, you don't have- this, I'm not this, in the 1%, this, unfortunately. This is gonna come off wrong, Brown, <laughs> but uh, I don't care. Like we don't have like that free card just because we work in the charitable space. Correct. And like I think that I get do. free groceries or I get free gas mm -hmm. or I get a free car payment. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, like I don't get that. Like, no, I don't either. We don't, we don't have that card. I do not. So I, I think, you know, again, not to labor this point, but we could have another podcast episode on this because I do feel very passionate about it. I mean, there is, there's a, um, I think the one thing though, Brown, working in this space, there is something of corporate responsibility that we yes. have to have more so than maybe in the for-profit sector. Um, and maybe that's a social conscious or whatever that may be. So there is something from a corporate responsibility that we do have to, you know, hey, if we're buying t-shirts, we're not buying them. If we can get them- Sustainability and, yeah, and, and, you know, there's certain and things. lean, like you should sure. always, you know, I say, I'm like, you should always do an RFP because I feel like a lot of charities just work with their guy, Correct. which their guy is great. But every now and then I'm like- It's good to shop around and see- You need see, a RFP like, because they might be getting, you know, they might like, oh, I'm going to up them. And then you kind of have to say, whoa, 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 we've got this person over here. Who will you know, charge, you know- 20% less yeah. and do the same work. So that's a great deal, right? Yeah. So, you know, but that obviously takes time, et cetera. But, you know, I sent you a video a while back. Um, Gary on, V. Yeah. Gary love V. Him. We I love, love Gary. I love Oh my Gary God, v. we love him. He's, I would love to be a chief heart officer. That would be like dream for me. But I just love how he just said that due to technology now, we are working at high speed and now what's going to slow us down are people yeah. and how to, you know, like, what people are motivated to, are motivated by today is going to be different in two years. Like you have a team that is all one got married this weekend, one just got married, you know, college, getting one's getting, getting married, married. Yeah. and you know, it's your job to basically say, okay, they're going through changes. So when they first came in, what their needs and wants are are different. So I got to make sure they feel heard and motivated. Oh. So they're going to continue to work the pace that I want them to work at. Um, and that's hard because that is a time sucker. However, if you invest in the front end, it's going to be really, really good. On the back end, it's what you put into it. Yeah. So here's my hiring recommendations. Um, pick the problem you want to manage, not what they do good, and hire slow, fire fast. It's powerful stuff. <laughs> All right. Tough questions here. We've got a couple okay. questions left. What do you think is the biggest challenge? for charities right now in, in 2019, where we are today? What is the biggest challenge that you see in your experience today for charities to grow? Um, I would say uh, staff and training. You know, I always say in nonprofit, when you're fully staffed, you're still understaffed. So just think about when you lose somebody, that's just like, it's, it's bad. So I feel that so many staff get thrown into a position and they're like, hey, here's a lifeguard, just figure it out. Because there's no money to train, professional development. And you're having them, you know, work with volunteers and staff. And if you think about it, there's politics and everything. But in nonprofit, you have the politics of your internal office, you have the politics of your volunteers, and you have the politics of your board. And those are three different groups of people that all have influence and power. The 
the board, you know, thinks you should be and do a certain way and you've got to manage that, then your volunteers who are basically the people keeping your lights on are going to be like, this is what I think you should do. And then you have your staff. And so that's a really tricky thing. And so I think, you know, professional and just training them and giving them the tools because they are a walking, they're, you know, they're a walking ambassador. So definitely training in the lack of skills and I've I would say that with younger generation, what I've seen with some is that because they're, they want to be almost micromanaged, like they want you to give them a to-do list for the week and say, okay, here's all the things that I need you to do. Cause they, they're, they have been structured their whole life. They've been told everything to do. Whereas I'm a generation X where, you know, latchkey kid, my parents worked. Yeah. It was like, yeah, you got to figure it out. So anyway, so that would say is something that's huge because people build relationships and if staff don't have the resources to know what to do, they're going to burn people off and say, and then those people are going to get upset, blast it on social or start their own nonprofit. And you don't want that to happen because, you know, so I would say that staff and professional development and training. Good what do stuff. you think? Good stuff. Uh, I think, it. you know, I, I think... I think that's an important and being innovative, like always changing. Like you should always, you know, when I, when I say, when I'm working on a market and marketing plan, I'm like, okay, every year you should constantly be trying something new. Like, you know, it's kind of like in a restaurant, you always hold 10% to like update the restaurant, keep mm-hmm. it fresh. And so there should always be money for innovation. But again, we're not a for-profit. So that, but that's what happens is that a lot of times charities change when it's too late, where there should always be some form of innovation and of growth. trying something new yeah. growth. I, I agree with you on both points. I, I think the one thing, that happens a lot of times though, too, though, is that, um, you need money to do things. So I think mm-hmm. you have to look at it, um, from a, what are you going to make your best return on investment right? with ideas and staff? So I think that's probably for me, like the larger arc is like, what's the best way to get ROI? Because at the end of the day, then that gives you the opportunity right. to do other things. Next question. Where are we in the next Let's say we fast forward and you and I hop in a time machine and we go 10 years. Where God, are we? I hope we still look good. <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to second, second part of that is where are charities in the endurance space? Cause this is what we're talking about. And then where are races? Where do you think races are? I think that where we are right now, there's just, there's a been, um, you know, the 20, 30 somethings, they like to run, but they like to do a lot of things. And so you're seeing an explosion right now with indoor cycling. And that's because it's fun. It doesn't take a lot of time. They can do it with their friends. Um, It's not as big of a commitment. Um, However, um, I feel like right now that's thing, but I was talking with, um, a colleague, well, I was talking to a person last week who used to work for Equinox, and she was like, if you think about it, we really repeat ourselves every 10 years. It's just marketing and rebranding, right? So she said, you could say that indoor cycling used to be the stationary bike, but now it's obviously elevated with, you know, whatever. And so um, 
we look at, you know, like you look at a lot of the classes now, it's really like Billy and Tybo or whatever back in the day. It's just been rebranded, elevated, tweaked. Yeah, like the P90X and now yeah. Beachbody. So it's, so it's to, I think to sum that up though, and I've said this recently and I heard this, is very powerful from one of our podcast guests, the CEO of Gooder. And he said, ideas are cheap, but execution is the key. Right. So like all these ideas and I've said like, hey, like, especially when we started Project Purple, like this was not like LLS was doing this. They've been doing it for over 30 years. Right. So it's not an idea like, oh, my God, like we've got this new great idea, but it's really the execution. And that comes into the staff, the right events. So from the charitable standpoint, I do agree. I think we're going to see kind of we're on this hamster wheel and I've talked to like. How do you get off the hamster wheel? I don't think you ever get off the hamster wheel. I don't think you ever get off the hamster wheel, but then you have to, like, you have to, you know, once a year, like, really check yourself and, like, go over and be like, are we doing everything the best we can as operations? Are we, you know, have we gotten stale? Yes, everybody likes what we do at the pasta party, but don't we, what can we do differently to enhance it? And those are going to be some hard decisions at times because people, you know, there's, there's a certain group. Don't you hate it when a chair falls behind you? Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure none as of you heard it, that. As long as it's uh, not a person. <laughs> um, anyway, I would say that the endurance space is, I think, what's happened now is that where it used to be a small group, that now there, it's 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 like now when you say, oh, I run marathon, I'm running for a charity, that's like saying you're doing a walk. Yeah. For a long time, people didn't understand it, but now it's mainstream. Correct. Where I always say to every charity, it's not a matter of if you're going to do an endurance program, it's how you're going to do Correct. it. And so now where I came from team and training, like this is the only way you can do it. Now there's a thousand ways to do it. So really to me, because you have so much competition out there and it's every charity has it. Last year, there were 493 charities that participated in the New York City Marathon. That's where people are really, really going to make you stand out from the others. And that's where it comes back to me with people creating a really great experience that they're going to come back and they're going to feel the love. Where do you think races go? Do you think races change Races, I feel like, you know, you're always going to have – it's interesting because when you look at the running space, like only five, six 600,000 people run a marathon out of 18.7 million. So for marathons, it's like, okay, if I was to do – I was like, you should do what you're doing, New York City, Boston, Chicago. Those are your, like – your jam. And then I would say that you want to, it depends on what your goals are. So I always say if you, you know, if you want to raise money, do a sellout, do a sellout. Um, But you're not going to be able to afford to activate or really people are not going to walk away from the New York City Marathon and say, oh my God, I've, let me tell you what I learned about Project Purple. Yeah. Whereas then you want to say, okay, well, maybe you pick a smaller race where there are no charities where you can really pop because there are a ton of races out there. You definitely want to do races with different distances because you kind of want to be a cat. You want to make it as attainable for people. It will be like a catch-all and everything. Yeah, because a lot of people are like, I can do a marathon. I just don't have time. You know, I'd rather do a half. Um, and that's this, you know, that's... What? That, that race is still growing. Awesome. Last question. Well, second to last question. Okay. 
if someone's listening on this and let's say they're in college mm -hmm. or we've got someone who's looking for a career change that wants to get in the charity space, yeah. what's the best advice you'd give them? Oh, wow. Um, that I would say, honestly, that if they want to get into nonprofit, it's great, but they need to really do research on the back end of the nonprofit on how fast they work. Because I would say that a lot of nonprofits are slow and because of the bureaucracy, there's a lot of roadblocks. So if you've got a little young whippersnapper who's like just in it to win it, I would recommend that they go with a smaller charity where they have more responsibility and they can move things faster. And also to um, utilize and take advantage of all the things you get to do that in a larger company you would never get to do. Like I remember, you know, I was in charge of fulfillment and Mark, I, when I was at the Corona, I was in charge of so many things Thanks, yeah. that when I went to the American Cancer Society, I was like, oh my God, yeah, each person, that's their only job. So that was quite interesting for me to learn a little bit of everything. Good stuff. Yeah. Last question and probably the hardest. What's your recommendation for the college football championship at the end of the year? What not your recommendation? What's your what's your guess? Your best guess? I don't know because right now it's you know it's the first weekend of October, and you know everyone looks beatable right now. Like there's not a team in my opinion that's just like oh god they're on all four cylinders. So it will be interesting to see what happens in October and November. Obviously, on, I want Alabama, you got, you got, yeah, Alabama. But I mean they're crushing the offense, but our defense is really young. So our defense, I mean they're true freshmen. Georgia's and, looking really good. You got Georgia's the guy, looking good, but they almost buddy, lost it to Notre Dame. You got your buddy Clemson in almost Oklahoma. lost last week to Kansas. We Oklahoma, Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts. Yeah, but former. they don't. I mean, come on. The, no offense, people, but Pac-12 is hashtag no defense. It's just offense galore. I mean, there is offense no defense. wins games, but defense wins championships. Exactly. So you don't have a guess for us. Is what you're saying is it's going to be Alabama it's up in the air. versus someone else? I hope it's Alabama else. and somebody. But right now, there's a lot of teams are catching up, and um, what we have going against us right now is um, youth and experience. And you can't, you can't. I mean, you just grace. We need to have grace for our little young players. Does uh, the the quarterback there at Alabama does he leave at the end of the year? Or does he stay for another year? Or does it depend on how they finish, do you think? Tua? Tua. Does what about Tua, him? Is he going to what? Does he walk to the NFL or does he stay for another year? Oh, he's going to walk. He's, he's going to run to the NFL. He's going like, to make a lot of money. Yeah. First of all, he has four amazing wide receivers that are all, except for one, are going to totally go to the NFL. So, I mean, he's like a kid in a candy store. He's yeah. got ex He's got amazing wide receivers to throw to. So I would say that next year we'll go back to our running game is what I think. Um, but you never know. But right now it's just weird to see our offense be the way it is because I'm like, oh my God, we're not running the ball. But it's really been fun to watch. Well, as I said before, we could do a whole podcast on college football, but oh, that's not the purpose here. We could talk here, about so many things about it. Which is great stuff. Last question for you, Stacy. I promise. <laughs> okay. For someone who might be in the charitable space mm -hmm. that wants to use your services or someone who maybe wants to talk to you about something that you said, it might be Alabama football, quite honestly. <laughs> and that would be fantastic. Where is the best place to find more information about you, about SLB Consulting, online, social media, yeah. Um, the best way is to go to my website at createinnovatemotivate.com or just 
you know, email me at Stacy S T A C I at S L B Consulting dot net. I love meeting new people. It's my favorite thing. And I'm a one of the things I love doing the most is connecting. I like to call myself a connector and I like connecting people with other people. So if anything, if you have a question, I can connect you with somebody or I can find somebody to connect you with. I'll find you someone. Or you can work with me, which is pretty fabulous. Not gonna lie. I will second that. It is pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. It is. On that note, Stacy, thank you for all you do. First of all, for Project Purple, much love oh, all through purple the years, hearts. and thank you for sharing some knowledge, dropping some dimes here on the Project yeah. Purple podcast about grace and really reflection in terms of what we do every day and mm-hmm. how that impacts the world for greater good. So it's the little things. It's the little things. Thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Here from the beautiful Moxie in Minneapolis. Where it's cold and chilly and no sun is shining. That's okay, though. But I'm digging it. I'm digging it. I'm liking it. it. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. (laughs) 